this really weird thought the other day. What? And it's going to sound silly when I say it out loud. But Probably. in my head, in my head, it made sense. So it's interesting how, okay, interesting, probably not the right word. But in my head, I'm like, okay, every week has the same amount of hours. Obviously, every day has the same amount of hours. <laughs> okay, yes. But why is it that some weeks just feel so much longer? Like, it's like when you put in the feeling or like the emotional like attachment to the hours or whatever like with whatever you're doing like if you're busy it either like feels really fast or really slow does yeah. this is this making sense i told no, you no, it's a little it, bit crazy it makes sense i totally agree i just um i don't i, I guess my thought <laughs> i don't is have just, a response my thought is that the impact of well i mean yeah your perception of it is going to change depending on how you're feeling i mean shitty things feel like they last forever Things that are good feel like they go by real quick. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I don't know. When it's daylight savings time, the weeks those weeks do not have... Or I guess the week it becomes daylight savings time and the week it doesn't become... Or true. it stops becoming... Daylight savings time ends. <laughs> there you go. That's the word. I guess you're right. Those are the weeks where you either have less time or more time. Uh, I know. Fuck the week that's an hour less. That's not fair. I need that extra hour of sleep. I am a, I'm a human man. I am tired. <laughs> I'm tired all the time. I mean, that's called being an adult. I know. <laughs> because I'm also, I'm not a human man. Oh, I guess. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm a female, but I uh, also like sleep. You know, I do like to sleep. I just. Anyway. Uh. Yeah. I know that sounded like really bizarre, but it's just that was my thought this morning when I was getting ready as I was running extremely late to work on this Friday because it's just been a really long week. It's been a really long week um, um, for a host of reasons. But anyways, hello everyone. Hi, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. I'm Tyler. And in this episode... We, we never introduce our episodes <laughs> like that, but okay. In this episode, you're going to be treated to two cases of murder that is shocking and horrifying. I don't know. I don't want to give things away. So. <laughs> I know. <laughs> there you go. But anyway, so clearly we're, I, I don't even know, delirious basically at this delirious. point. Delirious. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> at this point. Sure. Um, we yeah. haven't even poured the wine. No. i Mm. It it uh, was very difficult today not to come home from work and have a glass of wine because that's all I wanted. Oh, I already had two glasses. Mm. Thanks for sharing. But it's been a while. Um, uh huh. No, I okay. had them like not at home. Okay, must be nice. Um, well, I got home and I don't know. Anyways, Patreon. You know, yes. smooth transition there. Smooth transition. So, guys, don't forget, guys and gals, don't forget that we have a Patreon page. Yes, um, we do. We're doing a really cool, like, year in review video series right now. Mm-hmm. And um, we will, I guess at the time you hear this, they should all be up. But yeah. um, if you're not a Patreon member, be sure to join. Yeah. Um, if you donate, we have a ton of perks for you guys. Like, not only are these videos, but also murder minis. Mm-hmm. We also have, I don't know, random content that we'll show that's just for Patreoners. And you also get, you know, different levels. You'll get a handwritten note from us. Yes. Um, you'll get to direct your own episode if you mm-hmm. pick that level. Social shout outs. We are all about the social. By the way, guys, yes. if you ever tag us in like your story on Instagram, we 
absolutely save it and put it on ours. Uh, 100%. Yep. Love, love getting y'all shout outs and love so much that um, you guys were listening and, and I don't know, it, 2019 has already started yeah. off fantastic. And it- anyway, so... Check out Patreon. Yes. Also, while checking out Patreon, make sure that you are subscribed on your podcast platform of choice, be it Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, all the... I love how you always have to mention Podbean. I don't even it's know because, what it is. I don't know what it is either, but it's weird. It's. <laughs> I mean, I guess Stitcher is also a weird name, but for some reason, Podbean, I'm like, what? <laughs> what is that? But Will someone please email us and tell us what Podbean is? We Blood also and have the internet. Gmail.com. But... No, no, no. Okay, yeah, let us know if you're listening to us on Podbean. Uh, but yeah, make sure you are subscribed. That is going to be the easiest way to make sure you are getting all of our uh, up-to-date notifications when we post new episodes every, every Tuesday. Tuesday. Um, you can, depending on your platform, have them auto-download uh, so that they are ready to listen to when you wake up or whenever you listen to our episodes. Yeah. Uh, one of my uh, co-workers listens to them while he runs, and that sounds terrifying. I know. I don't want to go for... And he, I think he goes for runs at like four in the morning or yeah. something. Yeah, so it's like pitch black, and we're like... And her neck was slit from ear to ear. Because that's how we talk. (laughs) When she was out on a jog. (laughs) While on a jog, Kathleen Barrity was found murdered, eaten, and torn into 75 pieces. (laughs) And he's just running along. He's just like, oh, (laughs) you know what? Honestly, probably runs faster. You know what? It might be a good... We are just motivators. Yes. We're basically motivational speakers. So have you... Have I told (laughs) you... Is that too much of a stretch? uh, No, not at all. Not one bit. (laughs) Honestly, I think this is basically a TED Talk. (laughs) Your dreams are coming true. My gosh. Just so y'all know, my dream is to give a TED Talk on professional development one day. Like, (laughs) one of my ultimate dreams. You're so boring. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I mean, you're not. I am. When you said that, you're like, <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't think of an example quick enough. Okay. I was trying to think of something really nerdy, but I'm a big nerd too, so I, I know it all for real. Don't. I find it all fascinating. Anyways, um, so do you have any fun news updates? I do. Anything? Because I do too, but you go first. Okay, so this will be a little late to the game. But I just finished watching you on Netflix. So sorry, <laughs> I'm looking at Tyler and I said this as if I... We I know, my new his, show on Netflix, We it's put some whatever. of his home videos and Netflix picked it up for a deal. No, just kidding. Yeah, it's they named it like Bird Box or something. I wasn't involved in that. But that's my story. I am Sandra Bullock. This show, I'm just going to okay, not even no, respond. Right. So the show is called You, and it's 10 episodes. The first season came out in December and has uh, Penn Bagley in it, who was in Gossip Girl. He was oh, Dan okay. Humphrey. And it also has Shay Mitchell, which was one of the girls is. from uh, Pretty Little Liars. And okay. the show, for those that think it's just like this odd mashup between Gossip Girl and Pretty Little Liars... You're a little bit right, but not in the way you think. So what? Hey, people who watch those shows, I've know never exactly. seen either. I know that's why I'm not okay. talking to you. Okay. Oh wow. <laughs> I mean, now I'm talking to you. Oh, no, so it's fine. it is about this guy who 
becomes obsessed with this girl and he's like stalking her and he wants to be with her and they end up in a relationship together. It's so fucking good. I literally binged it in three days and you know how busy we were this week. Yeah, I don't I know s- how you had time for that. I didn't sleep. I went to bed at like oh. 1, one thirty about every night. Oh, I did that anyway. I just <laughs> call it insomnia. Um, okay. Well, uh, my news is better. So... Okay, well... Yeah. Tell me. Uh, they found Jamie Kloss. Yes, I saw that. I saw. And so, exciting news. Yes. So if y'all... They found her alive. Yes. You, you forgot the key word. I guess word. that's fair. Yeah. So um, if y'all don't know the case, I mentioned it a couple months ago, actually. So, and it's been all of the news. But in October, I think October 15th of last year, there was a 911 call made in Wisconsin, middle of the night. The 911 operator could hear, like, shouting and hear noises, but couldn't speak to anyone. The line goes dead. Operator tries to call the number back, and it just goes straight to voicemail. So when police finally arrived at the house that the call was made from, Mm -hmm. they found uh, two adults dead. Dead, They were Jamie's parents. Jamie was missing from the house. Nowhere to be found. Um, And it was very clear from what they saw that she had been abducted. Yeah. And, like, not that she, like, murdered them and ran away. Like, she was also a victim. Yes. And there, like, weren't any leads. So just a few days ago on January 10th of this year, she runs into a woman that's, like, 60 miles away from her home. And it's in a really rural area. This woman's walking her dog. Yeah. And this teenager runs up to her screaming, like, I I don't know where I am. And explains to her. And the woman is like, holy shit, this is Jamie Kloss. So they don't know, like, if the person that kidnapped her is, like, hunting her down right now. They have no idea. So instead of going back to the woman's house where they'd be alone, they went to a neighbor's. So they were all together. Yeah. Um, Jamie tells them her story. She doesn't know where she is, but she knows this man killed her parents and kidnapped her and she escaped somehow. They haven't really gone into the details yet of how... No, I have um, no idea just, how she got out. So just so y'all know, in case something does come out afterwards, we're recording this on the 11th. So one day after. Yeah. Um, so this is after very news fresh news. Mm-hmm. Um, and they caught her kidnapper, the guy who murdered her parents. He's this 21-year-old guy from Wisconsin. He has basically no connection to Jamie. He has no prior criminal record. They don't know who the hell this dude is. They ca- they caught him today? They caught him like 10 minutes after Jamie... Oh my um, god. ...called 911 from the her rescuer's house, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so I listened to this story on NPR and I didn't mm-hmm. touch on that part. No, <laughs> yesterday the news was that they had someone of interest in custody and today it came out oh. of who the guy is. He's this, yeah, this 21-year-old creep. That's crazy. Yeah. And so they have no idea why he killed her parents and kidnapped her and they're not yet into that other more. like it points to he was obsessed with her for some reason, but it's not yet clear what kind of connection, you know, how he even knew of her, anything like that. How old is she again? She's thirteen. Oh my god. But she's safe. And one of the one of the best things I read in the news report was from the neighbors that she went over that the the woman who found her right. like, went to their neighbors. Right. And um they were like, you know, she was obviously traumatized, but she she seemed okay. Like yeah. she knew she was safe. They offered her like food and water and she turned it down, but she was like playing with their dog. Y'all, 
I don't know if it's something that is underreported or if it really just doesn't happen this often. I unfortunately think it's the latter. Yeah. But you don't hear about people who get kidnapped and found alive months later, especially children. Yeah. And because obviously months later. Yeah. Um, and obviously this is drawing comparisons to the Elizabeth Smart kidnapping. Um, she was kidnapped and held captive for nine months. And when was that one? That was in that was in 2002 when she was 14. Oh my god! So fairly similar, um, I guess, overarching kind of narratives there. Uh, granted, Elizabeth Smart today she's um, married. She's a mother. She's an activist and a journalist. I mean, yeah. she's a rock star today. So yeah. Um, I mean, I just, yeah, seeing that news, I got the CNN alert and I was like, holy shit, they found her. I know. I was sitting at my desk and I was like, oh my God, just such good news. Yes. And, um, yeah. Okay. That was a good thing. Great current news. Super current. Yeah. Um, for you guys, I know it's the 22nd, but this is still like super fresh news. Yes. Well, um, would you like to go ahead and hop into this week's topic? Yes, tell me about it. Okay. I don't know why I was, like, saying it that way. I don't know like, why you're asking you. me, because um, it's not my topic. So, would you like me to hop into this week's topic? Go for it. Okay. So, we've done female serial killers. Yes, we have. One of my favorite episodes. Mine as well. But there's still a lot of legs to that topic. So, this like week... spider. <laughs> I'm like sorry, a, that's bad. Like a that's killer so bad. spider. Oh my God, like a black widow. <gasps> yes. Isn't that a... It is. It, a, a black widow kills... It's a It's a woman that kills her husband. Yeah. She's a black mm. widow. We're doing killer women. So I have a few statistics that I want to share with everyone. Yeah. So women commit only about 11% of all murders. Um, I believe this number is in the United States. It's a very, very small percentage. Yeah. And that's not surprising. No. But since 1980, the number of female murderers has actually been cut in half. And it's it mirrors the decline of male killers yeah. as well. And I think a lot of this is it's a lot easier to get caught. Uh, but in 2008, only about 1.6 women committed a homicide out of every 100,000 people. Wow. So okay. it's a really small, small number. But when it does come, I, I want to talk a little bit more about female serial killers. Yeah. Because while there are not many women that kill, of those that do, there's a lot of serial killers out there that are female. Um, they are more rare than males, of course, but they're not non-existent. And about one in six serial killers are are women. Really? One in six. I did not know it, it was that high. Because well, that's, what, eight, 18% or so? Yeah. Versus the 11% for normal homicides. So that's a pretty significant It uh, is. It really is. And, and women are often overlooked and underestimated. Yeah. Which is why, to be honest, a lot of them can get away with it for a lot longer. Yeah. Because they're not normally seen as, you know, someone who would commit something like a murder yeah no that's true 
So Marissa Harrison, she's an evolutionary psychologist at Penn State Harrisburg, and she conducted a study of female serial killers. So so Harrison ultimately identified 64 female serial killers who were active between 1821 and 2008. Researchers then used uh, a lot of reputable news sources to create a profile for each of these women. So their age, birthplace, ethnicity, relationship status. And from all of these profiles that they put together, they assembled a portrait of the average female serial killer. The average female serial killer. Why does that sound like the next Netflix show? Uh, well, because in two months. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, I was like, oh, oh, wow. But doesn't that just sound like the next Netflix show that's a dark comedy that, I don't know, it stars your favorite actress from some NBC show? <laughs> it know. actually does. The average female like... serial killer starring Ellie Kemper. <laughs> As Susan. That's actually who I was picturing. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, okay. What really stood out from their research was how ordinary she was. The woman that they created through all these profiles. Or that they melded together from all the profiles. So she's likely to be in her 20s and 30s. Middle class. Probably married. Probably Christian. Probably average intelligence. So basic... How different is that from like an average person profile in the u.s i mean like average income average intelligence average height 20s to 30s that's the point oh so basically everyone's a serial killer it's basically like describing your next door neighbor yeah and this is something that's also a killer i hope not she seems nice (laughs) but this is also something that's true of male serial killers that's true And, and we've talked about that i think actually in the last episode they possess you know average intelligence although a lot of them are super highly intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, blue collar jobs. Very few are legally insane. Like it's yeah. it's your average Jane, your average Joe. Of these women serial killers, of these 64, more than half had murdered children. But a quarter had targeted the elderly and the sick. Oh, so interesting. So I guess preying on much more vulnerable targets yes and there was a big part in this article this article is from the new yorker um but a lot of it was about women being in jobs where you care for people yeah like babysitter nurse that a lot of the female serial killers have those types of jobs and the question was do they seek out that type of job because they want to murder or do they want to murder after being in that job and the opportunity was there. And, and not saying yeah. that, like, being a nurse makes you want to murder people. But it's like someone who has that inclination, you know, being in that role. I working a night shift as a nurse makes you want to murder people. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. So, one yeah. thing that is very interesting. While the number of female murderers has declined, female serial killers appear to have become more common over the years. Really? So the team identified 38 of these who were act of the 64 who were active in the United States between 1965 and 2014. So if you remember the the first year they started out was 1821. Yeah. So a significant like half of them yeah. were within the last, you know, 150 years. There were only 15 in the preceding 50 years. Wow. Okay. So that's an increase of more than 150%. However, I wonder if a lot of that is due to, you know, the 50s and before them just like not even looking, not even really investigating women, though. So a lot more women got away. It's not just that, but 
you are more likely to be caught in the modern era because True. of investigative work and the scientific progression yeah. that you know we've done. But that's exactly it. Um, women killers were often motivated by money, and mm. they would kill people they know. Um, and just f- as a side note, for men, it's sex. Generally, they're motivated by sex. Ugh, so basic. It is. Uh, poison, as we mentioned in our last episode, specifically about female serial killers, poison was by far their preferred method. Yeah. Um, while men most likely shoot, strangle, or stab their victims. Okay. Which, I didn't do a poison, because we've done specifically a poisons episode. Uh, actually, same. So... Uh, we did, and and this actually really reminds me of the case I did in that episode. Jan- uh, my murderer, Janine Jones, she was a nurse. Yep. She poisoned and murdered a bunch of babies yeah like, and she actually was recently back um in on trial yeah being convicted of more murders yeah because she originally was out. convicted of i believe two but it's suspected of dozens yes so i mean but focused a lot of that on female serial killers yeah but that information was just so interesting with the comparison of you know the number of female murderers being so small yet female serial killers are increasing mm. uh, when we look at it or are a larger percentage yeah so um so that's our topic yeah um what wine do you have for us so i am so ready for this wine because it's one that we have actually sampled before. yes we have um we have. so this wine is the valley Mills Vineyards 2016 Rosé. The Valley Mills Vineyards, it's this smaller vineyard in Texas, just outside Waco. In Valley Mills. I mean, yes, it's in the town of Valley Mills. <laughs> um, and they do a bunch of different wines. Their wines are, for the most part, dry and very interesting. A lot of yes. their grapes that are grown in the area, it's a very alkaline soil, a lot of limestone. So the wines get a very interesting earthy flavor. Yeah. Um when we were drinking one of them, it reminded me of almost like brie cheese. Like that Yeah, I think that, that was earthy kind of alkaline flavor. It was their bedrock one. Yeah. Which that name very much goes in line with yeah. those alkaline flavors. Um, flavors? But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um but their wines were phenomenal so i was yeah so we we bought some we did Uh, but one of the most interesting wines they had was this rosé because it is not a typical rosé so the 2016 rosé is valley mill vineyard's most popular wine it's a dry rosé with it's their most popular yeah According to their website. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, it's dry rosé, crisp and fruity with notes of watermelon and strawberries and like a minty finish. Yeah. Um. So, you know, that sounds, oh, okay, it's fairly typical dry rosé. It's not. Just let me get there. Just give me a second, y'all. Well, and um, wait till you guys see the picture of this. Yes. It so, does not look like rosé. So this wine, it is lightly pressed Grenache grapes, but it's different from other rosés because they also use 5% Tempranillo grapes, which Tempranillo is what this vineyard is known for. Yes. One of their Tempranillos, I believe they're 2014, yeah. won like third best in the world. And yeah. it was the highest ranked US one, which is really cool. Um, I don't know yeah. what... Uh, like wine competition that was but i'm not sure either um so not only is it different because they use some tempranillo grapes but they also leave the skins on for longer after mashing and that gives it a much darker red pink color 
as opposed to the the very light blush kind of pink that you expect from a rosé. This one's a very deep... I don't even know... It's not even like it looks like a white zen. It's not Mm-mm. that same color. It's it, just a darker blush. It looks like... Um, honestly, if you've ever had the passion tea from Starbucks or Tazo, that's... To me, that's the color I'm getting. Kind of looks like that, yeah. Um, But it's a rosé. And it also has a deep flavor that's not found in most rosés. Yeah. Most rosés, I think, are very, like, light on the tongue, very you know, very refreshing, which is mm-hmm. great, but this one is a much deeper. So I'm going to get into this. So it absolutely sounds like a rosé that's a good for a red wine drinker. Yes. For someone who is like us. Mm. Um, although, I mean, I say this, I absolutely love rosé. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I really like this one. Uh, see, um, I like rosé. It's not my go-to. If I was going to oh, have a, mm. not a red, I would go for like a Sauvignon Blanc before I do a rosé. But um, I'm going to get into this bottle. Yes, open it up. Also, we're using my wine key. Which is a wonderful two dollar IKEA thing, but it's it so works. good. Ooh. Okay, give that a nice pour. Oh my god, it's so pretty. I feel like I'm gonna take a picture of what this looks like in the glass, so you guys can see it on Instagram and see the color. Do it. Let's smell oh, this. It smells so fruity and. It does. Fresh. Oh my gosh. Yes, this smells wonderful. Mm. Okay, right. cheers. Cheers. Mm. Yes. Gosh, I remember how much I love this when we first tried it. And oh, yes. This is not disappointing. Like that memory. It's you know? so good. I was hoping it would taste just as good as it did the first time. Same. Yeah, no, this is my favorite rose I've ever had. Like, bar none. Granted, you've had like. French rosés and stuff, which I, I've had some, but you've had them in France, which is different. Um, it is. <laughs> because I also know one of my favorite rosés was, is the Mateus. It's a Portuguese rosé. Yeah. I had it in Norway. I think we talked about it when we did the um, French rosé. Oh, I think we did. But yeah, it has a weird, like, paddle-shaped bottle. Anyway, it's not expensive. It's like a $8 wine here yeah. in the U.S., but mm, love it. But damn, this is good. I know. I am going to be drinking this really quickly. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Well, we have introed our topic, Killer Women. Yes. And our wine, Rosé, Valley Mills Vineyards. Rosé. Yep. yep. I want to hear your murder. Okay. So mine's a big one that I am sure you have heard of. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of it. Um, I didn't. I never knew names in this case. I mostly knew of it through, like, pop culture references. Right. But mine is the case of Andrea Yates. Oh, I've also heard of this one, but only through like pop culture references, as you so eloquently put it. Yeah, so this is one I researching it and diving into it. Wow. Yeah. And y'all will see as I go into it. Um, but the sources I used were Wikipedia, CNN, The Lancet, The Houston Chronicle, ABC, The Chicago Tribune. And ABC 13 News in Houston. Was this a Houston murder? It was. Well, a suburb of Houston, but yeah. Are you serious? Yup. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. So, Andrea Yates was born in Hallsville, Texas in 1954. She had a pretty rough childhood and teenage years. 
She suffered from bulimia when she was a teenager. Uh, She also suffered from depression. And at 17, she spoke to a friend about suicide. Oh, no. So she was a, you know, she was suffering as a teenager. Um, So Yates completed a two-year pre-nursing program at the University of Houston and then went on to graduate from the University of Texas School of Nursing. Yeah. From 1986 until about 1994, she worked as a nurse at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, which is huge cancer hospital. Yes, um, it is. Like, one of the most well-known. And in the summer of 1989, she met Russell, also known as Rusty Yates, uh, who was two months younger than her at her apartment complex in Houston. Uh, They soon moved in together and got married in April of 1993. They announced to friends and family that they were going to seek to have as many babies as nature allowed. They wanted to have a big-ass family, which, I mean, go for it. Yeah. So they bought a four-bedroom house in Friendswood, Texas, and... Soon after, Yates gave up her job and got pregnant. Their first child, Noah, was born in February of 94. Oh, wow. So she, like, got pregnant fast right uh, after they got married. Yeah, just a few months after. So just after Noah was born, Rusty accepted a job offer in Florida, and the family relocated to a small trailer in Seminole, Florida. Um, Their lives weren't... um, weren't great Wasn't let's great. say florida um, did not they lived well in a trailer in florida they also uh lived in a converted bus i mean it was a very oh, no. stressful everything but by the time they had their third child paul uh they had moved back to houston back to houston okay so following the birth of her fourth child luke yates began to show signs of severe depression yeah On June 16th of 1999, Rusty found her shaking and chewing on her fingers. Oh my god. The next day, she tried to commit suicide by overdosing on trazodone, which is a medication used to treat depression. And she was admitted to Methodist Hospital Psychiatric Unit, where she was diagnosed with a major depressive disorder. Um, Um, soon, Soon after her release, she begged Rusty to let her die. And as she was holding a knife up to her own neck, you know, like got the knife away from her so she wouldn't hurt herself. Uh, She was once again hospitalized and she was given a bunch of different medications, including Haldol, which is an antipsychotic drug. And once she was given Haldol, her condition immediately improved and she was prescribed it uh, regularly when she was released. They were like, this is helping. This is helping. So after that, Rusty moved the family into a small house for the sake of her health, and she appeared to begin to stabilize. Yeah. So after this, she was diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. Um, And what exactly is that? So she's having psychotic episodes where she is kind of breaking from reality. Right. Um, So most people have heard of postpartum depression. Yes. Where many... Way more women than is talked about. Um, It's something that's really not talked about and it absolutely should be. It should be talked Um, about way more. Due to, you know, a combination of all the trauma you go through in birth, all the hormones rush through your body, and just the different, the way having a baby changes your brain. Many women. And your life. Yeah. 
But many women suffer postpartum depression where they get extremely depressed after having, after giving birth. Uh, So postpartum psychosis is similar to that in a way. And it was causing her to have these episodes where she would have these nervous breakdowns and try to commit suicide. Oh my gosh. So Yates' first psychiatrist, Dr. Eileen Starbranch, urged her and Rusty not to have more children. She said this would guarantee future psychotic depression. I feel like, I understand that. More pressure, more stress, Mm -hmm. more likely of um, being super vulnerable. Yeah. Seven weeks after her discharge, she, they conceived their fifth child. So in March of 2000, Andrea stopped taking Haldol and in November of that year gave birth to her daughter, Mary, which she actually seemed to be coping with this pretty well until the death of her father in March (sighs) of 2001. After this, Yates stopped taking medication. She was mutilating herself. She read the Bible feverishly. Uh, She stopped feeding Mary. Um, And she actually became so incapacitated that she required immediate hospitalization. Oh my gosh. Um, And on April 1st of 2001, she came under the care of Dr. Muhammad Saeed. She was treated and was released. Which on June 4th of 2001, Dr. Saeed discontinued her prescription for Haldol. Why? I think it, it wasn't working. Anymore. Oh, she had gone back on it after yeah. having Mary? And it oh. wasn't wasn't the right medication for her. Oh my gosh. And maybe it's... Do you think it's that thing where when you take a certain medicine for a long time, your body stops being susceptible to it? It just gets used to it? Like, this is yeah not the same type of medicine. But I know I have really bad allergies. Mm-hmm. I have to constantly, every couple of years change what allergy Mm -hmm. medication I'm taking because it just stops working. Well, and going closer to this, I know a lot of like antidepressants, once your body gets used to them, stabilizes with them, you have to kind of up the dosage because your body gets used to them. Yes. So oftentimes what doctors will do is try to find a type of drug that works and use different drugs in that family. And kind of cycle between some instead of just having to up up and up your dosage. Which that, yeah, Yeah. that makes more sense. Um, So I think that that was the plan. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, due to events I'm about to go into, that... Didn't happen. Yeah. So just to kind of recap, over the previous few years, their family life had been increasingly unconventional and chaotic. Yeah. She'd given birth to five children and miscarried one. Um, Andrea was teaching all the children at home. They were all homeschooled. She ran the household without any outside help. And before his death, she was also taking care of her father, who had Alzheimer's disease. That is a lot to put on one person's shoulders. Yeah. That is a lot. That is enough to break anyone. Yeah. And it broke Andrea. Well, and she was in a very vulnerable position. Yeah. So on the morning of June 20th, 2001, at about 9 a.m., the Yates children had finished their breakfast and their father had just left for work at the Johnson Space Center where he was a NASA engineer. Soon after... Wow. So, sorry, I don't know what his career was like in the past, but this 
puzzles me as to why Florida went so downhill. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Like, it, um, it almost sounds like they moved for his job and he quickly lost it. Um, so, I'm not sure in my sources. It didn't really go into it. Okay. I do know that they were a very um, less common type of fundamentalist Christian. Very fire and brimstone teachings. I could definitely see um, it being the type of church that could teach to not shun society, but be very wary of society. Uh, so maybe that's why they lived a little more off the grid in oh. Florida. But okay. I, I, I don't know. Well, I mean, and that's all conjecture, so... Yeah. Um, but, okay. Yeah. So, I'm sorry. Please continue. Yes. So, morning of June 20th, Dad is, had just left for work. The kids had just had breakfast. Andrea Yates was filling the bath with water, and she methodically drowned one by one her five children. Oh, my God. So, her kids, Noah, who was seven, John, who was five, Paul, who was three, Luke, who was two... And Mary, who was just six months old, all died. And one thing, I think, just because you just brought up they were fundamental Christians, those are all biblical names. Yeah. All of their children. So she started out... Oh my gosh. Sorry. I'm in shock. Like, I can't... Wow. So she started out with John, Paul, and Luke. And then she laid them in her bed and covered them with a white sheet. She then drowned Mary who she left floating in the tub. Oh, my God. Uh, Noah then came in and saw, you know, asked what was wrong with Mary. Um, He then realized what was going on because he's the oldest. He's seven. Yeah. Um, So he runs, but she caught him and drowned him in the tub next to Mary's body. Oh, my God. Um, She left him floating there in the tub and laid Mary in John's arms on the bed. She then called the police repeatedly saying that she needed an officer but she didn't say why and yeah. I actually want to play the 911 recording So, I know that was real muffled and difficult to hear, but you can hear her very calm talking to this dispatcher, just saying, like, I need the police to come. She's not telling them why. Yeah. Um, The dispatcher is, I think, very obviously thinking that this is an abused woman who maybe her partner is standing right next to her, so she can't say why? Right. Um, she can't give be, details. Yeah. Because you, you can hear the dispatcher asking, you know, is he there? And she's like, no. And then she asks Andrea if she's sick. And she says, yes, but that she doesn't need an ambulance. Just bring the police. And then she's like, actually do bring the ambulance. Um, so that was all the information that she gave in the 911 call. Well, and it's interesting. I feel like as a dispatcher to know what to do in that situation, when you're not being given a lot of information, mm-hmm. it's almost like... I mean, you remember the whole, you call 911 and order a pizza. Yeah. And they know that you're clearly Mm -hmm. in a bad situation and you need help, but that you can't say what's happening. So I absolutely understand why the responder was 
answering in the way she was. Which just, if any of y'all don't know of that tactic, you could use anything like it. If, oh, yes. If you're in any kind of situation of domestic violence, of anything that you need to call the police for help, but yes. you can't be seen calling the police, you are are scared that that could get you in more danger. Say, you know, you're talking to your friend Carla or you're ordering a pizza because most dispatchers are trained that if yep. you're speaking clearly, not making any sense, you know, you're ordering a pizza, they're gonna be like, oh, this isn't, you know, you have the wrong number. And you respond like, yes. So I've seen a lot of cases where they'll be like, okay, is he next to you? Yes. You know, and just like ordering a pizza or pretending you're calling whoever. It's definitely something to know. It is. It's a tactic to know and to just keep in your back pocket and hope you never, ever have to use it. Absolutely. So after calling the police, Andrea then called Rusty, just telling him to come home right away. When officers arrived at the home uh, and asked if she was the woman who called 911, said, yes, and I've killed all of my children. Oh my God, when they were at the door, that's what she said to them? The officers reported that when they arrived, she was calm and quiet, but was breathing heavily. They went into the house and saw the bodies of the children. Um, When Rusty arrived from work, he got there and there's all these police around his house. He has no idea what's going on. Rusty. Um, They told him, but he wasn't allowed to see his children. His children, yeah. Um, So Andrea was arrested for the murders. So one month after Andrea Yates drowned her children, she met with a defense psychiatrist and kind of gave little insight into her own account. Because the biggest question right now, we know what happened, that she drowned her kids. We know who did it. She admitted to it. Yeah, she didn't hide it. Why? Why'd she do it? So she stated that she didn't want to hurt the children. That she tried very hard not to hurt the children. But her motivation was very clear. She believed that killing her children would save them from going to hell. How? Why? Um, She goes to it a little bit more, but it's... Be, oh because God. of her mental illness. So in jail, yep. she said that she had considered killing the children for two years. Uh, she had she not... didn't even have all of them at that point. No. Oh my God. Um, she said she had not been a good mother to them, that they were not developing correctly. Um, she claimed to have been marked by Satan, and that the only way to save her children from hell was to kill them. Then, when the state punished her for their deaths, Satan himself would be destroyed. Um, She also had, you know, there were, she saw television cartoon characters telling her that she's a bad mother. She heard a human voice that told her to get a knife. And on the walls of her jail cell, she saw satanic teddy bears and ducks. She said she was not mentally ill and had never been depressed because she had never cried. Does she mean she's never cried in her life or about what happened? I think she, she means said, you know, she, she never she's cried. never cried. So, she, you know, she was arrested and she was charged with capital murder, but she did plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah, I absolutely understand that. So, although the defense's expert testimony agreed that she was mentally ill, the Texas law requires... That in order to successfully have the insanity defense, the defendant must prove that they could not discern right from wrong at the time of the crime. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, you, I, I think in a lot of states, that is the determining factor yeah. of being able to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah. And so during the trial, a lot of it is put at, you know, she called the police. She knew what she had done was wrong. You know, she felt sad about it. So does this apply? Right. So in March of 2002, after taking less than four hours to reach a verdict, a Texas jury found Andrea Yates guilty on two counts of capital murder. Only two? Only two. She was not, um, like, charged or tried in three of them. I'm not sure why. So although the prosecution did seek the death penalty, the jury refused that option. Well, and that, so that makes me think it's why they didn't try her in all of them. I mean, maybe, because they were hoping for the death penalty, and it's one of those, you get two, three, four, or five, you're yeah. still dead. Yeah. Um, however, it's very odd to me, though, because <laughs> of what seems like this exact situation, that that would be their reasoning. I just don't get it. Yeah. I'm I'm really not sure. I couldn't find any trial transcripts okay. or really go into um, this March 2002 trial. Yeah. So the trial court sentenced her to life in prison with her being eligible for parole in 40 years. So one thing about this trial is it hinged. So at least she did get the opportunity for parole. Yes. You know, it wasn't death sentence changed to no, we'll give you life without possibility of parole. Yeah. So it seems as if while she didn't get her not guilty by reason of insanity, the jury did give her a little bit of leeway and, and took that into consideration. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I, I don't um, know. It's not over yet. Oh, oh. It gets... Uh, worse? No, not worse, because it can't. But um, it continues. I it don't know. It continues. Okay. So one thing about this trial is it hinged largely on the testimony of a psychiatrist, Dr. Park Dietz who had been hired by the prosecution to interview and evaluate Andrea Yates. So Dietz had no particular expertise in postnatal disorders. He said that he stopped treating patients in 1981 or 1982. So at least 18 to 19 years before the case. Yeah. And he'd last seen a patient with postnatal depression in 1977. And he wasn't even sure he'd ever seen a case of postnatal depression with psychotic features. But he has testified for the prosecution in several high-profile homicide cases, including Susan Smith, who killed her children by driving her car into a pond, mm-hmm. Ted Kaczynski, the uni- who's the Unabomber, yeah. and Jeffrey Dahmer. So... Oh my god. Also, De- how old is this dude? I, for real though. Um, so Dietz was the one who claimed that Dahmer was legally sane. Oh my god, I bet I talked about him. Yeah, that that was him. He was that psychiatrist. Yeah, um, in case y'all don't know, I did Dahmer in episode one. Go back and check that one out. So, like Dahmer, Dietz testified that Andrea Yates was not insane. Um, he said that she knew what she was doing was wrong as was indicated by her belief that Satan, not God, had ordered her to kill the children. So she knew it was wrong. Yeah. So he's saying, she's not insane. She's saying Satan told her to do it, so she knows it's wrong. She knows it's not God telling her to do it, and she's thinking it's a good, righteous act. Right. Um, 
Dietz told jurors that Andrea did not have hallucinations before the crime, and that whatever she had was nothing more than obsessional intrusive thoughts. What? Yeah. He also testified... Oh, I fucking hate this guy. Um, He also testified that just before the killings, an episode of Law & Order had been shown about a mother with postnatal depression who drowned her children and was found not guilty by reason of insanity. So he's telling them she obviously saw this episode, was like, hey, this woman drowned her kids, got off on the insanity defense. Holy shit, I'm going to do that. That's going to be me. But there's no evidence that that is true. There's evidence that it is not true. Like, there is evidence that it's not true. There's evidence that it's not true. So author and Yale University lecturer Suzanne O'Malley was covering the trial for the Oprah magazine, the New York Times magazine, and NBC News. Yeah. She'd previously been a writer for Law & Order. And the second she heard that, she immediately reported that that episode didn't exist. Oh my god, there had he, never fucking been. he fucking made up an made episode? Up. Yeah, so he's, and that was one of the big <gasps> oh things that convinced god. the jury. That she... That that she was not insane and guilty, because they're like, oh, there yeah. literally was just an episode that she might have seen. You know, she's a stay-at-home mom, that was taking one care of her the... kids. She watches Law & Order, maybe. Maybe, that it, maybe it was even an inner statement that she watched Law & Order every day. I don't know. But, you know, and so he's... they used that against her, and that was he so, used her so against false. Her, and it, there was no episode. What the hell? Yeah. So, due to the material false testimony that Dietz gave, and the massive impact that it had on the case, on January 6th of 2005, a Texas Court of Appeals reversed the convictions and ordered a new trial. Yeah, I absolutely get that. 100%. So, the appellate court held unanimously that the jury might have been influenced by Dietz's false testimony, and therefore a new trial was necessary. On January 9th of 2006, Yates again entered not guilty pleas for the reason of insanity. Mm -hmm. And on February 1st of 2006, State District Judge Belinda Hill approved a $200,000 bond for Yates on the condition that she immediately voluntarily commits herself to Rusk State Hospital, yeah. which is a mental health treatment facility. So July 26th of 2006, after three days of deliberations, the jury rejected the state's theory that Yates knew her actions were wrong when she drowned her children and acquitted her of capital murder in their deaths. Members of the jury were quoted as saying, she needs help. Although she's being treated... I think she's worse than she was before. Yeah. I think she'll probably need treatment for the rest of her life. It was very clear to us all that she did have psychosis before, during, and after. Which I wholeheartedly agree with them. 100%. Wholeheartedly. Yeah. So, following this verdict, the prosecution released a statement that said, Five years ago, Andrea Gates called police to inform them of what she had done to her five children. It was no mystery then who ended their lives. We are extremely disappointed with the verdict. Which, yes, she did kill them. Like, that's not the question. She admitted to that. But she very much was a victim of her mental illnesses who's to say that even if you are legally insane that you wouldn't call the police yeah it's not an admission of guilt is not showing necessarily Mm -hmm. 
understanding right from wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting. I feel like the definition that to use the defense, you have to prove that you didn't know right from wrong in this case. Right. What if you are under a schizophrenic or a psychotic episode where you know this is wrong, but you are compelled and you, you feel you have to do this? Yes. You, I mean, you know, would that fit Texas's definition of being able to use this? No. Does it mean that you have a very severe mental illness that heavily, heavily contributed to this and instead of being in prison should be in a mental health facility seeking treatment. Yeah. 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 So I agree. That's my big issue with how that defense is. The whole right wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not black and white. Yeah. This is a topic with so much gray area that it is difficult to write Mm -hmm. a a law to surround when it's acceptable and when it's not. Like it's, it's, it's a big challenge, but something I, it needs to be addressed. Yeah. So while Yates escaped spending the rest of her life behind bars, she will most likely spend the rest of her life in a psychiatric ward. Mm-hmm. Her attorney said that it is highly unlikely that she will ever be released and her case will remain under court supervision. So Rusty Yates, the Poor father Rusty. of the children yeah. who had filed for divorce from Andrea in 2004, yeah. expressed his frustrations with the court and prosecutors after prosecutors had showed the jury crime scene photos of the dead of his dead children. He was very angry with the prosecutors. He's saying, who are they really serving? Do they think the children want Andrea to be in prison? Do they think we, her family on either side, want Andrea to be in prison? Is it of any public benefit for Andrea to be in prison? Is she a danger to anyone? He's still on her side. Yeah, which is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And that shows support. Because mm-hmm. he did, um, they I did mean, divorce I, I, and he did get remarried. Yeah, oh, um, I absolutely understand but, him getting yeah. a divorce, but that doesn't mean he didn't still but, no, believe he in her. You know? understands that this was the mental illness that he saw daily. That's what that I was going to say. He saved like, he her from multiple this. times and he they tried to. I think that's what breaks my heart about this. It's not a case of them ignoring this and being irresponsible about her illness they tried tried over and over to get her treatment but the treatment she needed was just far stronger than anyone realized i guess absolutely um so andrea yates was committed to the north texas state hospital vernon campus and in january of 2007 she was moved to kerrville state hospital yeah. Which is a low-security mental facility in Kerrville, Texas. The Mental Health Association of Greater Houston established the Yates Children Memorial Fund to educate the public about issues affecting women's mental health. And in 2003, the Texas State Legislature passed the Andrea Yates Bill, which has been amended to be more comprehensive. This bill requires all providers of prenatal care to give new mothers information about resources available to help them with postnatal depression. Yes. So today, Andrea remains at the Kerrville State Hospital, and while her case does come under review every year, and passing this review could mean her release, Mm -hmm. uh, she has waived her appearance for a review every single year. Really? Hmm? She knows she needs to be in there. Yeah, and it... Like, that that is the mm-hmm. best place for her to be. That is where she's getting the best help mm-hmm. that she needs. And yeah. 
Well, and it's mental illness is not a one-stop shop. You can't no, it's say not something you fix that, like, oh, super she, quickly. Well, you also can't say that, oh, you know, she's so severely mentally ill that she received the insanity defense. Obviously, she must be, like, pulling her hair out and talking in a fake language and stuff. And it's like, no, she knows the impact and the effect of what she did. Yeah. But she also, because of her mental illness, had the reasons of why she did it. Yeah. And it, so, you know, you, you, you can't uh, subscribe w- one type of blanket symptoms to mental illness or insanity mm-hmm. because that's not no. how the brain works. It's not. It's not. Not at all. So that was the case of Andrea Yates. That is really intense. And I honestly never knew the results. I mean, it was like you were saying, like in pop culture, you know, we have all, all, whatever, we've heard of the mom who drowned her five kids in the bathtub. Yeah. Or just the idea of knew. like postpartum depression, mother drowning her kids. Like yeah. that. Yeah. But what the case actually was is so different. And I'm so happy that she's no longer in prison and is actually getting the help she needs. Yes. Um, I am too. My heart breaks for those children yes i i mean i what she did was so so wrong that it's hard and i can understand that it's it's hard when you were saying like i'm happy for her but it but i am as well because she she needs help and there are some people that just need help and they Mm -hmm. do things that are horrible Mm -hmm. well they need help they're and and throwing them in jail for the rest Mm -hmm. of their life throwing them in prison Mm -hmm. is not I want to give them the help they need. No, there are so many people in our prison system currently that don't belong there, that have these mental health issues that need to be taken care of and that, you know, they need treatment. And, you know, there's there's a difference between someone who is, you know, just a fucked up bad person who murders these people. Yeah. And there's someone who is so severely mentally ill that they commit murder. There's a huge difference between those people. There is. And so I just, we need to do better about mental health. Yes. Um, We need to do better about even increasing, giving more money to prison so they can adequately see the inmates with these mental health issues and be able to recommend them to the right facilities. I don't know. Uh, Yeah. There's a lot that needs to be done. Yes, there is. So that is my killer woman. Let's go into yours. My case takes a lot of these topics that we've been discussing in a different conversation. Okay. You'll see where I'm going. So I did the case of Eileen Warnos. Okay. So this is one that I actually do know a little bit more about. I Granted, I only know the overarching stuff. Yeah. Um, it is... There are so many details. And obviously, there's the movie. Yeah. Um, I there are documentaries on Netflix, by the way. If y'all haven't watched those, check them out. They're really good. Um, there's, you know, the investigator was followed her while she was on death row for many, many years. And it gets, like, really close to her. And it's wow. it goes right up until um, the end. Because, I, I mean, it's not really a spoiler alert, but Eileen Warnos was executed. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people know that because she was a woman. And that's not yeah. a very common thing. Uh, for a woman to be executed. But there's also the movie with Charlize Theron 
Monster. Yeah. See, I've never seen Monster, but I've heard of it. And Christina Ricci. Yeah. Um, I mean, Charlie's Theron won the Oscar for Best Actress for that movie, right? Yes. Yeah, she did. I've seen, like, clips and stuff from, like, YouTube videos where they're like, oh, the top ten, like, best movies you have to see. And her transformation into Eileen Warnos is mind-blowing. It's incredible because, number one... It's spot on. She looks like Eileen in that movie. Yeah. But, I mean, that just goes to show, like, movie makeup magic and the talent yeah. that it takes to well, I know um, transform an actor or an actress into another person. Yeah, because I know she, like, wore a false set of teeth for it, and she also gained 30 pounds yes. uh, for the role. And just the way she also used method acting and dove into her psyche... I, I've heard incredible, incredible things. And I, yeah. th- as much as I don't like movies, that is one I really, really want to watch. I definitely recommend it. I have seen it more than once. And I'm one of those people, unless I really like a movie, I'm not going to watch it again. Mm-hmm. I, I don't just... Because I think there are a lot of people who would just like toss on a movie, whether they've seen it or not, yeah. just to have something playing. And like I won't yeah. do that. Well, I feel like the kind of movies... I'll do that movies, with TV. Fair. I feel like the kind of movies, though, that generally you would put on repeat are lighthearted or funny ones not something like this not something like this but i've seen it and i'll watch it with you again it's just it's incredible but let's get into the story of the real eileen warnos okay so eileen was born on february 29th 1956 her father was a convicted sex offender and he was actually out of the picture already when she was born and ended up hanging himself in his prison cell when she was 13 years old Wow. So, but he was not a part of her life. Her mom was a Finnish immigrant, and by the time she was 13, her mom had already completely abandoned her, leaving her in the care of her paternal grandparents. Less than a year after her father committed suicide, so she's still 13 years old, her grandmother died of liver failure. Damn. So she's just, she does not have... She's losing everyone. She's losing everyone. She doesn't have that family base to, Mm -hmm. you know... For her upbringing. Unfortunately, her grandfather had been, according to a lot of accounts, um, beating and raping her for several years. So even the one family member she has left is... A monster. A monster and is not taking care of her. After a childhood that was just filled with abuse and abandonment, Eileen found prostitution at a very early age. She would trade sexual favors at her elementary school for cigarettes and other treats when she was 11. Oh my god. So this is, you know, when she was 11, that was before her father passed away, like before her grandmother passed away. Like, this type of... So it's like, even though her... It's not the situation where her grandmother passed away and then her grandfather started abusing her. It was happening in the home. Like, all the time. Yeah. When she was 15, she dropped out of school to have her grandfather's friend's baby... So I guess her grandfather's oh friend God. was also partaking in these things. Uh, so she went to a home for unwed mothers to give birth. Jesus. After she had the child, she and her grandfather had it out in this like really, really huge domestic incident where she was left to live in the woods outside of Troy, Michigan. What the fuck? So she gave up her son for adoption and survived through petty theft and continued prostitution. And that is... That's what she knew. She knew that as a way to survive. Yeah. She did what she had to to survive. Absolutely. 
and it's all she knew. See, this is one of the big things why I very, very much think that prostitution should not be criminalized. No, no. Well, and actually... So many of these women are either victims or, you know, there's also a lot of... And it's it's not just women who are sex workers at all. It's men and women. Well, and that's what I was going to say. I said prostitution and, you know, the term that is more acceptable nowadays is sex worker because it was her job. It was her livelihood. Well, because it's also one thing that's like, you know, for every other thing... That someone is good at and has a skill in, it's a trade. You know, why in modern society is sex still so shunned that the idea of selling it Mm -hmm. is so wrong? But there's also, on the flip side, so many people who are victims of sex trafficking and sexual violence that turn to prostitution. So it's it's a double-edged sword, but shit, if it was something that was regulated like any other industry if you needed to get a you know a sex worker's license and to keep your license you need to have you know negative std tests i know regular hiv testing and have um that it can be regulated and there can be an eye on it because there are so many people that are in it because they are sexual abuse survivors or because they're in sex trafficking that feel like, you know, I can't really go to the law enforcement because I'm doing the crime too. You know, I'll be arrested for prostitution if yeah. I get... So it's... I know. And so yeah. they feel they can't reach out for help. Yeah. Well, by the age of 20, Eileen tried to escape her life. She hitchhiked to Florida and she married a 69-year-old man named Louis Fuck. Fell. Louis Fell, he was a very successful businessman who had settled into this, like, semi-half retirement as the president of a yacht club. Um, are you going to open gonna, the second yeah, bottle? Yeah, I need to open the second bottle. Yes, because I've barely gotten into anything, which is what's so God. sad yeah. about my case. So, pop that bottle. Here we go. So Eileen moved in with Fell and immediately started getting into trouble with local law enforcement. Hmm. She frequently left the home that they shared together to go drink and be rowdy at the local bar where she often got into bar fights. She also abused Fell. He later claimed that she beat him with his own cane. Oh. Eventually, he got a restraining order and he forced her to return to Michigan to file for an annulment. And they'd only been married for nine weeks. Like, it was not a lot of time that had passed. Around the same time, her brother, with whom she had had an incestuous relationship with, suddenly died of esophageal cancer. She collected his $10,000 life insurance policy, used some of the money to cover a fine for a DUI, bought a luxury car that she then crashed while driving under the influence. So, she's broken. Like, she is just, she never had a life of fulfillment. It yeah. was it was chasing lots of different things and yeah. and trying to resolve lots of different situations. Uh, as soon as the money ran out, she returned to Florida and started getting arrested for theft again. She briefly did some time for armed robbery. And she stole $35 and some cigarettes, so she did some time for that. She continued to work as a sex worker and was arrested in 1986 when one of her customers told the police that she pulled a gun on him in the car. And demanded money, so she tried to rob him. Mm-hmm. And in 1987, 
she moved in with a hotel maid named Tyra Moore, and this is the woman who would become her lover and partner in crime. Okay. They ended up having a four-year relationship together, and as far as Tyra's involvement, it depends on what story you hear. Yeah. So, now I'm going to get into when Eileen started murdering. Okay. With all of her murder victims, she would rob them, shoot them, and steal their cars. So, there was, like, a a system. And they were her, like, Johns. They were her Johns. Yeah. Her first victim was a man named Richard Malloroy. He was 51 years old. He had just finished a prison term um, in his pre- in you know the years previous, and he met Eileen in November of 1989. And at the time, he was running an electronic store in Clearwater. Okay. He was a man that was just out, picked up a sex worker along Interstate 75 in Florida to engage in sex for hey, you know, yeah. he just wanted to have a good time. Eileen ended up shooting him several times in the chest, dumped him in the woods, and ended up ditching his car a few miles away. Shit. Police would later find him several miles away from his abandoned car. So in May of 1990, which is about six months later, Mm -hmm. Eileen killed 43-year-old construction worker David Spears. She shot him six times in the torso and stripped his corpse naked. His body was found in June of that year, so the next month. Wow. Her third victim, five days after Spears' body was discovered, police found the remains of 40-year-old Charles Carsicadon. He was a part-time rodeo worker, and he had been shot nine times in the chest and stomach and tossed on the side of the road. So all of these victims are her Johns. Like, she's robbing them, killing them, stealing things from them. And once I get into the trial, there's there's a lot more information that comes out mm-hmm. at that time. But her fourth victim, law enforcement found the body of Troy Burris. He was a 50-year-old salesman uh, in August of 1990. Mm-hmm. And this was a less than a week after he was reported missing. So mm-hmm. they found him relatively quickly. Yeah. Though his body was fairly decomposed after this week, the medical examiner was able to determine that his cause of death was Two gunshot wounds to the torso. Yeah. I also find it really interesting that she's shooting people in the torso. That doesn't seem like a spot. It's not like a kill spot. Like, it is, obviously. But it's not like the head, where it's like, yeah, they're going to die. Or the chest, where, yeah, they're going to die. It's almost as if she's shooting with... I guess your chest is in your torso. But when I think torso, I think like... I think stomach area. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's as if she's shooting with reckless abandon. Like, she's just shooting and... Is shooting multiple rounds. Yeah. And that is how she's killing people. And not necessarily like, oh, I'm going to do a headshot, like, execution style. Like, that's not her yeah. her method. Yeah. So her fifth victim was, was a retired Air Force major, police mm. chief, and Florida child abuse investigator, mm. Dick Humphreys. He was found dead on September 12th, 1990. His body was fully clothed, and he'd suffered multiple gunshots to the head and torso. Yeah. So again, that reckless abandoned shooting. Yeah. His car was later found um, as well. Okay. Her sixth victim, June 30th, 1990, was 65-year-old Peter Seams. He disappeared when he was driving from Florida to New Jersey or Arkansas. Oh. I've seen a couple of different Okay. Um, Either is an awful drive. Uh, yeah, so a long drive. Witnesses later claimed to have seen two women matching Tyra and Eileen's descriptions driving his vehicle. Later, Eileen's fingerprints were recovered from the car and also several of his personal effects that turned up in local pawn shops. 
Oh. So. Okay. One interesting thing about Peter is that his body has never been found. Oh. Her seventh and final victim was discovered on November 19th, 1990. A partially disrobed body of Walter Antonio was found in just a remote area of Dixie County there in Florida. He had been shot four times in the back and head. His car was found five days later. In all, Eileen had killed seven men between 1989 and 1990 in the span of 12 months. It was basically November to November. Wow. She was picked up on a warrant after yet another bar fight at a biker bar in Florida. At this point in time, Ty had left her and returned to Pennsylvania. However, police quickly apprehended her the day after Eileen was booked. Oh, Unlike many of the female serial killers who are likely to go unnoticed, Eileen attracted just an obsessive amount of media coverage. And a lot of this is because she used a gun and she was targeting strangers, which if you remember how I was talking at the beginning, this is something that more resembles male killers than female ones. So she was a unique case in that she was not poisoning people. She was not killing people she knew. Mm -hmm. She was robbing and shooting absolute strangers. Wow. It didn't take long for Ty to just flip on her. Yeah. You know, the days immediately following Eileen's arrest, Tyra came back to Florida. She was staying at a motel that police had rented for her. And she's making calls to Eileen in an attempt to elicit a confession that could be used against her. Yeah. So in these calls, you know, Ty's acting. She's pretending to be really scared that the police would pin all of the blame on her for all these murders. And she'd beg Eileen to go over the story with her again. Like, what's our story? What's our story? Step by step in order to get their story straight. And after four days of these repeated phone calls, Eileen ended up confessing to several of the murders, but insisted over the phone that the killings that Ty didn't know about were all because of attempted rapes. So a lot of Eileen's defense is that, no, they were trying to rape me. It was self-defense. Authorities, they now had what they needed to arrest her. And so they did. Eileen consistently told conflicting stories about the murders. Sometimes she claimed to be the victim of rape or attempted rape with every single one of the men. Mm -hmm. Other times she admitted she was trying to rob them. And it just all depended on who she was talking to. Her story was consistently changing. Okay. She spent... Consistently inconsistent. Consistently inconsistent. Absolutely. She spent all of 1991 in jail awaiting trial. During that time, Ty was fully cooperating with prosecutors in, in exchange for full immunity. Wow. Okay. She and I... And remember, this is who Eileen was with for four years. This is not just like a few month relationship. Yeah, this is... This was her girlfriend for four years. She and Eileen constantly talked on the phone. And Eileen did know in general terms that Ty had turned on her. And that she was a witness for the state. Yeah. Did she know that when she was originally talking to Ty when Ty was in the motel? Uh, I mean, I think she found out because then she was in jail. No, I mean, of course she found out. Yeah. Well, I know, but like at the time she... When she was revealing all Oh, this. no, no, no. She did oh, okay, not know at that okay, time. Okay. It was probably right after. And then God. Ty continued to talk to her. And like, she no, is. She knew. So, yes, yeah, she did murder these guys. She has, like, been betrayed by literally everyone in, in her, her life. life. God. She, it seems, never had someone on her side. No. Ever. And, unfortunately, in my research, 
I never found anyone who was. That's not to say that there wasn't, but her immediate people, no, they weren't. They turned Both our on. cases are just very sad for everyone. They're very sad. So the longer Eileen was in confinement, the more increasingly unstable she became. Yeah. She started to believe that her food was being spat in or otherwise contaminated with bodily fluids. Okay. She repeatedly went on hunger strikes and refused to eat the meals in the prison that were prepared by various individuals in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And her statements to the court and her own legal counsel started to become very unhinged with yeah. many references to jail staff and other inmates she believed were all plotting against her. So these are very, very clear signs for mental illness. Absolutely. She's, she's losing it. Yeah. In confinement. So, now I'm going to go into her trial. Okay. So, again, like I said, she spent 91 in jail. And in the state of Florida, a defendant convicted of murder can be punished by death if the murder is found to have uh, been committed under a different series of certain circumstances that are listed in the Florida Penal Code. Okay. And some of these situations are murder of a police officer or firefighter, that the defendant murdered two or more victims, that the defendant committed a murder for hire... Or that the murder was intentionally committed in the course of a kidnapping, burglary, robbery, aggravated rape, or other uh, statutorily specified oh felony. God. Yeah, okay. Eileen was charged with the first degree murder of Richard Malaroy, armed robbery with a firearm or deadly weapon, and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. Because like I said, she was already a convicted felon. She had done some time. Yeah. And prosecutors further argued um, and agreed with, with this assessment that she qualified for the death penalty based on the charge of murder committed in the course of a robbery. Like I said, she's robbing all these men. Yeah, yeah. And um, that qualifies her, unfortunately, for death penalty. Yeah. She went to trial for Mallory's murder on January 6, 1992. Mm-hmm. Her defense was a self-defense claim. And against her attorney's wishes, she did testify at trial. Okay. She explained that with Malaroy, she'd offered to perform an act of prostitution, and he drove her to an isolated area. The two drank, smoked marijuana, and talked for about five hours, which is a really long commitment. Yeah. She described herself as drunk royal. I don't know what she means by that. But around 5 a.m., she disrobed and, you know, she's going to perform uh, a sexual act, which is, you know, what they agreed upon. Mm -hmm. She asked Malaroy to remove his clothes, but he said he wanted only to unzip his pants and that he didn't have enough money to pay her fee. She went to retrieve her clothes, but she says Malaroy whipped a cord around her neck, threatened to kill her like the other sluts I've done, and tied her hands to the steering wheel. What the fuck? And according to Eileen's later version of this account, Malaroy violently raped her vaginally and anally and took pleasure from her crying in pain. He eventually untied her, told her to go lie down. She believed that he intended to kill her and she began to struggle. He told her, you're dead, bitch, you're dead. So at that point, she finds her purse, grabs her gun. Mallory grabs her hand and they start fighting for the gun. Yeah. Eileen prevails in the situation, shoots him, and he keeps coming at her. So she shoots him a couple more times. Yeah. During her testimony, she repeatedly 
stated her claim of self-defense. Yeah. And during cross-examination, which is why her attorneys did not want her to go, because then the prosecution can question her if she goes up on trial. They can't call her, but they can question her if she's up there. Yeah. Yeah. She became very agitated and angry, and um, her attorneys were telling her not to answer questions, and she invoked her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination 25 times, and she ended up being the only defense witness. So, things aren't looking good for her. No. Her defense also raised an issue that soon after her arrest, there were three detectives on the case, as well as Tyra Moore, who was her girlfriend, who talked to media to sell their story. Really? And some people suspected that these deals influence witnesses to exaggerate their stories on, yeah. you know, the for the side of the prosecution. Well, yeah, because if your story is, oh, you know, I saw her driving in that red sedan that was this guy's car, that's not interesting. But if you know people are getting a bunch of money and selling the stories to the media and oh shit this could be a book this could be a movie deal then you're, you're gonna, gonna say oh well i saw she was joyride she was hanging out the window she was partying she was so happy or whatever yeah exactly you embellish uh, and you yeah. make shit up yeah so despite the defense's argument the jury recommended the death sentence by a vote of 12 to 0 they concluded that five aggravating circumstances and only one mitigating factor were present in Eileen's case. The aggressive circumstances that they cited were were that she had been a previous or she had a previous felony conviction involving the use or a threat of violence. Mm -hmm. Murder was committed during the commission of a robbery which is why she was being given the death penalty in the first place. Yeah. Murder was committed in order to avoid arrest. Murder was heinous, atrocious, or cruel. Um... Murder was cold, calculated, and premeditated. Uh, how? Which... So the, those last three, how are they getting it? I mean, the murder is cruel. Yeah, I mean, yeah all murder is cruel. But like, to I me, that know. makes me think some kind of like torturous murder. And it was And it, I don't, yeah, it's, it's gunshots. Granted, well, I mean, maybe she, they could have seen it as her purposefully, you know, we discussed earlier, she didn't shoot them in the head or the heart. They maybe could have seen that as purposeful to let them die slower. Um, I don't know. I I don't know if I agree with all of those. But I don't know if I disagree with the overall consensus. God. uh. Well, and this was just one of her murders. She's not on trial for all of them. She's on trial for Malroy. Just one. So, I feel like the premeditated, like, that's... Yeah, that I don't... That's where I'm like, no. That seems a bit iffy. And also, sexual assault amongst sex workers is extremely high and prevalent. It is. For reasons of sex workers often don't feel comfortable going to the police because of... Of what they're doing, what like they're do- you said earlier. Like, so, it, it's something that there are so many misogynistic, disgusting jokes out there. Like, if you rape a sex worker, is it rape or is it robbery? You know, sh- like, disgusting oh shit like that. I that, that. That's yeah. fucking disgusting. I've never heard that. Yeah. I, it, it, well, and in this situation, it's literally a, do you believe her or do you not? Yeah. And in today's age we're in, there's the big discussion and big rally cry for just, yeah. like, believe women. Fucking yeah. believe women. Because 
I am not going to sit here and say that she wasn't raped. I don't know. No. I no absolutely, one knows besides her. I absolutely... Well, from her childhood, she was. But during, yeah. you know, in these murders, was she raped by any of these men? I don't doubt it. I don't either. I also know that sexual assault, in just general society, I think the number for women that's reported is one in three. And I can imagine for sex workers, especially for people who are in Eileen's scenario Mm -hmm. of doing it out of desperation, it's got to be closer to 100%. Right. Well, and like, do I believe she's guilty? Yes. She admitted she killed these men. Do I believe she was raped? Yes. And when you look at the fact that she murdered seven men, it's almost like there's this PTSD argument that you could put in. Like, if, you know, Mallory did rape her, Mm -hmm. but she still had to continue on making a living, there's that fear in the PTSD. That all of her Johns are trying trying to to rape rape her. her. And And, and I absolutely, and that is something that, at least in my research and what I've seen about it, that's not an argument that came up. Well, this unfortunately uh, ties into the next point, the mitigating factor. Like I said, the jury found one. Yeah. And it was that Eileen Warno suffered from borderline personality disorder. However, the jury decided that despite her psychological difficulties, Eileen knew the difference between right and wrong. See? And yeah. Which I also, on the flip side, I do totally understand that just because someone has a mental illness does not instantly absolve them of... Right and wrong. Yeah. Knowing that. Yes, because like, I agree. For example, if I murdered someone, yes, I have a history of depression. I have PTSD. That doesn't mean that that had anything to do with it. You know, you have to be able to find the evidence of the murder was caused because of the yes. mental illness. And yes. I guess in a lot of these states cases, the right and wrong piece is there. So I, I get it. Yeah. It's unfortunate. It is. It is. And the judge agreed with the jury and took the recommendation and sentenced Eileen to the electric chair on January 31st, 1992. Fuck. This was the only murder charge against Eileen that went to trial. Really? Yes. The other murder charges ended with guilty or no contest pleas. I didn't know that you could plead no contest to a murder charge. I guess if you're already sentence to execution then maybe it is an option yeah because a no contest is essentially saying you know neither guilty nor not guilty i mean it's not yeah kind of just and but but yeah no but i can see with there already being execution on the table this being a thing but i also can see how that would be very difficult for the families of those victims not being able to get a trial. Yes and no, because so around a month later, after her guilty conviction, she pleaded no contest to three of the murders, but her sentence was death. Yeah. So I guess that's true. They, they didn't get the trial, but she The trial would have been more or less for show. Because yeah. whether she's found guilty or not guilty, her sentence in the first one is going to be carried out through and through. Exactly. Well, and it's like, I mean, I guess they didn't feel the need to do it. She, yeah. She, and I, it was a plea deal. Yeah, and I get that. A deal. I say deal. There was no deal. Yeah. It was death, so it was a plea. Yeah, and I, I get that because there's... I don't know. I don't like it. I don't like it. Well, in June of 1992, Eileen pled guilty to the murder of Charles 
Carsicodon mm-hmm. and was given another death sentence in November for that crime. No charges were ever brought to her for the murder of Peter, Peter Seams um, because his body was never found. Yeah. So all in all, she received six death sentences. I Yeah, because I guess when you plead no contest, the immediate effect is that of a guilty plea. Yes. So she still got the sentence yeah. of death. Even. God. So it's kind of just like, okay. Um, in the state of Florida, their constitution requires an automatic direct appeal to be taken yeah. um, when the defendant has been sentenced to death. So the direct appeal, it can't be waived by the defendant. And like all trials, the legal representation must be provided to the defendant. Oh, okay. So in November of 1994, the Supreme Court of Florida affirmed Eileen's conviction and sentence six death sentences. Mm. Eileen then filed a petition for a writ of centauri in the United States Supreme Court, but it was denied in 1995. So during her very long post-conviction period that lasted from 1994 until 2002. Wow. So... Eight years. Eight years. And it's actually even longer. Like, she's been in jail since 91. Yeah, so 11. Eileen argued that her original trial counsel provided ineffective representation. One example of her poor representation was that the trial counsel failed to uncover that Richard Malaroy had a prior rape conviction. Oh. And that could have corroborated her argument of self-defense. Yeah, and I feel like that That's why wouldn't... he was in prison. When I said he got out oh. earlier, he had been in prison on a rape conviction. Another. Oh. I know. Isn't that See, huge? So, I feel like, one, that that wouldn't have been that difficult to find. No. No one looked. And, which is so fucked up. And two... Or they did and didn't disclose it. It definitely... I believe her that he tried to rape her. Yeah. And I I can definitely see that coupled with her traumatic childhood, teenagehood, early adulthood, adulthood, like, life. Her life. You know, her having the PTSD and... Being in that mindset that these men are trying to rape her. I wonder, because this this goes into an ethical question of, you know, if she realizes this, but continues her work as being a sex worker, is she still at fault? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't either. And this is such an interesting case because of her background and mental illness. It's hard to define guilt Versus yeah. not guilty because of reason of insanity. Like, yeah. It's... Well, and it's what kind of... If if the definition of mental illness to meet the not guilty by reason of insanity is not knowing right from wrong, there are a lot of cases where, you know, again, PTSD, for example, that doesn't mean that it could not be a very strong contributing factor to this. Yeah. So... It doesn't meet the definition, but is it something that should? Well, yes. I strongly feel that you can understand the difference between right and wrong, but have a mental illness that's a driving factor for your actions. 100%. That you're still, I mean, it's like I said earlier, like, yes, you're guilty, but it's not, you shouldn't get the death sentence for fuck's sake. I I mean, you shouldn't get the death sentence in general, ever. But especially when the issue of mental illness is involved. Absolutely. Um, so. And, sorry, and also no, no, just. No, go ahead, go ahead. Also because there is that one 
big mitigating factor that they did, the jury did concede to. Yeah. They knew she had mental illness. Yeah. Like it. And that she had borderline personality disorder. Yeah. So another thing that trial counsel failed to do was call lay mitigation witnesses during the penalty trial who could have testified to um, Eileen's claims of abuse during her childhood and yeah. when she was younger. I mean, they could have called school teachers. They could have called just any number of witnesses, and they didn't. Several of Eileen's childhood friends and neighbors later said that they would have testified if they'd been called. They were never contacted. Okay, so I'm actually, at this point, with those two big bombshells i'm with her on ineffective counsel yes well in this last one in later hearings several of these potential witnesses testified that they were contacted by the media following her arrest but never by the public defender's office really yep see and while journalists do amazing work and do such and make such incredible leads and have such an incredible investigative ethic and skill the fact that the media was able to contact you know these people that and her lawyers i think the biggest thing is the fact that her lawyers didn't try i know because okay maybe the media finds them first great that's easy for the lawyers to get in contact with them or what like but Mm -hmm. fuck i yeah no ineffective counsel all the way i feel like had the jury I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like had the jury had this kind of insight into her traumatic life, she would have at least gotten life in prison. Yeah, and not... Not the death penalty. Well, another thing Eileen argued is that she'd not been effectively evaluated regarding her competency to stand trial. And... No, I... I wholeheartedly agree with that one. However, her erratic behavior continued to get worse and worse. She fired several attorneys and in 2001 she dropped her appeals some of the attorneys did contact the florida supreme court to express their concerns that eileen was not competent to be executed they were like look listen like my client no this is what's going on no all of her claims were evaluated and then rejected by the state and federal appellate courts it's so interesting the kind of power that is given to few individuals I don't know if that if that is going anywhere or just an observation, but that these, you know, the Florida Supreme Court can say, no, I know we're not we're not going to test her. Well, and additionally, like not only during her trial was she diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, but she was also diagnosed as a psychopath. And see, and these people, the jury, the Supreme Court, the appellate courts, that they are literally a group of people deciding does this person live or die yeah and that's just not it's not okay well and what they said was that her being a psychopath with borderline personality disorder was not strictly relevant to her actual crimes but that it it did very much affect her in prison which because she was just going downhill and downhill like through all these appeals i but okay I don't agree with it. I don't no. understand that. I don't understand viewpoint. how they could say that, oh, yes, it severely affects her now. But then, no, 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 no. No, exactly. That's stupid. That's stupid. Well, in 2001, she directly petitioned the court to ask for her sentence to be hurried along. She was fucking tired at this point. She's really? like, just hurry it up. 
She was on death row for 10 years. She was like, can we just fucking come on? She cited abuse and inhumane living condition. She also claimed that her body was being attacked by a sonic weapon of some kind. And her court-appointed lawyer tried to argue that she was irrational. But Eileen would not go along with this defense. She's like, no, I'm not being irrational. This is happening. Not only did she confess again to the slayings, but she also sent this line to the court as a document for the record. I am so sick of hearing this, she's crazy stuff. I've been evaluated so many times. I'm competent, sane, and I'm trying to tell the truth. I'm one who seriously hates human life and would kill again. On September 30th, 2002, Governor Jeb Bush granted a stay of execution and ordered a mental examination to determine whether Eileen was competent to be executed. Okay. Florida law mandates that an inmate cannot be executed unless they understand both why they've been sentenced to death and that execution results in death. Yeah. They need to comprehend those two things. Three psychiatrists examined Eileen and the state concluded that she was competent to be executed and the stay was lifted. So on October 9th, 2002, Eileen Warnos was put to death by lethal injection at 9.47 a.m. And just to show you how long she was on death row, she was sentenced to the electric chair. They since changed it to lethal injection during her time there. The state of Flora executed the 10th woman in the U.S. to receive the death penalty since the 1976 reinstatement of capital punishment. And Eileen was the second woman ever in Florida to be executed. At the time of her death, she was 46 years old. I forget capital punishment was reinstated in 76, when a lot of other countries were doing away with it. Yeah, and we reinstated it. God. She was so young, and she needed help. She, yes. She was clearly mentally unstable. She was mentally ill. She was was a victim for, she was 46 when she died? She was a victim for 46 years. She was. I mean, And what she got out of it was death by lethal injection. And while I am by no means defending what she did as being right, like, yes, she did a lot of wrong. She did. She was robbing people. She was killing people. Like, she's not a good person, but she never had any real chance in life to become a good person. She didn't. She was only faced with adversity and and the bad things in life and she had all of them literally i think every shitty thing you could think could Could happen happen to someone someone, happened to her it happened to her and so the fact that she got the fucking death sentence i'm like what just she needs to be either life with parole or like mental (laughs) mental health institution yes she needs to be at a mental health institute like something other than death penalty i just yeah. This is very much one of those cases where I'm like, I don't understand how the judges and the jury came to the cl- conclusions that they did. Yeah. Because the evidence, I feel, was so strong for the fact that she needed yeah. help. Well, and, and this that is she was the fact, on the edge. The fact that her case did not get, her case for uh, ineffective counsel. That they denied it. Because from everything I heard from you... From just what I heard from you. I'm sure there was a lot more oh, in yeah, it, too. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. That is ineffective counsel. They did not do their job. And granted, I very much understand. I assume maybe she probably had a public defender. Uh, yes. And I, public defenders are woefully, woefully understaffed, under budget. Oh, there yeah. There are 
And their caseload is just astronomical. Oh, yeah. I I remember seeing a report that in certain cities, public defenders have, like, 60 seconds to... Mm-hmm. Like, that's all the time they were able to spend with someone. But the fact that this wasn't a plea deal, yeah. which those... Because I mean, with, with public defenders, because of the time crunch, the budget crunch... Oftentimes things go to plea deals. The fact that this did go to trial and it went through appeals and that the ineffective yeah. counsel wasn't brought up or wasn't, um, I guess. It didn't move forward. Yeah, move yeah. forward. As an appeal trial. That's horrible because you know, had this exact, exact situation happened, but Eileen Warnos had $2 million to spend on the best attorney's. I'm sh- I'm sure she would have gone to a mental right health in- institute and after a couple years been fine and walked free. Um, but the fact that she didn't have extra money and she was sentenced to death. Yeah. So that that's the case of Eileen Warnos. And yeah. she is very much known as like America's like number one female serial killer. Like when Which you is think horrifying. Because of- yeah, when I I didn't know all the details when I thought of this case, I thought like, "Ooh, murder lady, murdering man." Like, it, I never, wow. I never knew the mental illness factor. Yeah. How yeah. fucked up her life was. How much she needed help and was abandoned by every single person in her life. Like, that's not mm-hmm. what's known. It's known. It's like, oh, Eileen Warnos, the woman killer. Well, she was just one of the most broken people I've ever. Yeah. Um, looked into and read about and uh, learned about but really there are some fantastic documentaries about her um the one on netflix is actually like i said the the reporter who did the documentary or the interviewer he's with her side by side and you get to see very much eileen in her element and Mm -hmm. you can see how mental illness deteriorates her throughout yeah. the series and I, I think there's a few and I'm I'm so sorry I cannot remember the name of the documentary but there are a couple on Netflix and you'll know which ones I'm talking about when you see them but you can just see how she deteriorates through her time in prison oh, and just the things that can happen to someone who needs help and is not getting it is getting the exact opposite of what they need but okay so I guess postmortem postmortem uh with how parallel our cases are this is really hard yeah this is parallel with the the mental illness it and we i feel as if we've been doing this a lot recently where yeah. our cases yeah our seem, cases seem very similar it, the, it's or like we're taking the, not similar but have connections yes and it's like we take the theme to like the next level mm-hmm. where it's like theme and connections well i know because for this one i mean it's just killer women but we both there were so many went, things we could have picked i know but we both went with victims of mental illness and yeah. th- that aspect of it and it i so i i can't even compare the two because no. they're both it's you know we've mentioned before how in so many of these cases everyone's a victim in a certain way yeah and everyone is so much of a victim in all of this like yeah I so we haven't done it in a hot minute. I'm thinking a draw. Um, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. This is one where 
you can't pick between the two. No. You really can't. And it's becoming increasingly more difficult to pick a... who does topic, who does wine for next episode because yeah. of the cases that we've been doing. And Why don't, wait, have we ever done a thing where we collaborate on topic and wine? What do you mean? Well, I don't remember. It's been so long since we've had a draw, I don't remember how we do it. Um, so, where we like both together pick the topic and the wine. I don't know. I mean, I guess we kind of do. To be honest, I think our last draw happened before one of our investigation discovery episodes, so it seemed to fall pretty mm, in line. Oh, okay. But, or was it one of our specials? Because I feel like it was a both. lot longer ago than our investigation discovery special. That's true. It could have been. But well, anyways. Okay. But this one, we're absolutely going to call this a draw. Yep. Because how do you pick between you can't these two? Compare. You, you yeah. can't. So, but if you're ever thinking like, uh, no, the other case, that one was so much worse. Or that was more like that profound. Was, yeah. And, yeah. Let us know. Um, I yeah. mean, always, we Let appreciate your comments. We want your feedback. Um, I would obviously want to create some kind of discussion, dialogue thing going on. Yeah. Talk um, to us. But yeah, no, for this one, yeah, no, draw. 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 All right. Well, draw. be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts mm-hmm. and let us know what you think. Give us damn five stars. Give us the five stars. Leave a word review. We love to hear the actual things that you like. Um, and. We love you guys so much. Thank you for listening. Yes, thank you all so much. And we hope that um, you guys are excited about 2019 and all the fun things to come. Well, that was a transition, but okay, well, yeah. I, I mean, you in know the what? podcast, and it, and it, we have a lot of things happening We do have a lot of things. Okay, okay, that makes more sense. I was thinking just 2019 in general. It but might also, be because we finished two bottles of wine, but... Well, but also, also, I'm excited be... for our listeners and their 2019 yeah. and all the things You know what, come, 2019 but... is going to be great. 2019 well, has to be better than 2018 because there's no option. It when you're at better. rock bottom, you can only go up. Although That's right dark. now the government's uh, shut down. Yeah. And it but has the, been for the longest they, time ever. The, the Congress did just pass a bill that um, all of the affected employees will be back paid. Thank which, God. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I didn't know a bill needed to be passed for that, but... No, I thought that was automatic. Yeah, same. But anyways, thank you all so much for listening. We love you all so much. Yes. XOXO. Blood and Wine signing off. Bye. Bye.